This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kemper Donovan, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Do you know, I talk to so many people. I actually think I've recorded well over 500 podcasts now. So that would oh, be wow. 500 authors. And there is always something different. And there is always something really intriguing. And it's the same with you. So oh, you I'm, a- I'm glad I, there is. A, what if you had said, but in this case, mm, <laughs> Nothing. this is a bit boring. I've seen this before. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't actually. All right. So Kemper is a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Law School. Kemper worked at the literary management company called Circle of Confusion for a decade before transitioning to writing full time. He is the host of All About Agatha, a highly successful podcast dedicated to the queen of crime, Agatha Christie. That's where I'm saying it's interesting. (laughs) And it's also the inspiration behind his latest novel, The Busy Body, the first book in the Ghost Rider series. Okay, okay. Firstly, I need to understand the podcast and tell me how many people are interested in that topic. There are a lot of people interested in the topic of Agatha Christie. I would call it a successful niche podcast because there are Agatha Christie fanatics scattered around the world. So the podcast is listened to uh, on every continent, I guess, maybe not Antarctica, but every uh, every inhabited continent. And it's been a joy to do the podcast since 2016. The story of the podcast is a little bit of a of a long and torturous one, so I'll make it as simple as possible because the podcast really was a joint effort. Yeah. I started it with a dear friend of mine who I'd known for many years before we even uh, started the podcast, and she was a lover of literature and mystery, and her name is Catherine Brobeck. So for the first five years of the podcast, we hosted it together, and it was very conversational, like this podcast, in fact. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, the backbone of the podcast, the the sort of organizing principle of it was that we were going to rank all 66 of Agatha Christie's full-length novels, which is quite a task to take on. And we had gotten to uh, novel number 60 when Catherine tragically passed away unexpectedly. Oh, this happened. How terrible. Yeah, this yeah. happened at the end of 2021. Oh, and um, yeah. I'm sorry. It's really, uh, thank you. It, it, it was obviously a tragedy mm. and, you know, something I'm, I'm still mourning and, and recovering from, as well as all of her loved ones, her friends and family. In the wake of it, though, you know, over those five years, we had built uh, such a community and so many friends and also fellow scholars of Agatha Christie that I was able to draw on them to be my co-hosts for the final six novels. So we did finish that ranking project. And the podcast just continues because there's always something new in the world of Agatha Christie. There's always something 
going to talk about something happening, uh, a new continuation novel, a new adaptation, a new critical approach, a new biography. It, it just it really I, I worried that I wouldn't be able to continue the podcast, but I have long since stopped worrying about that mm -hmm. because the material is pretty much endless. And as you can probably tell, I'm a, a fanatic and an obsessive when it comes to Agatha Christie. So, uh, yeah, that is the podcast. Okay. I'm going to go backwards, right? Because the sure. second thing I want to talk about is you having worked in a literary management company. Now, I worked in publishing for a long time, like a long time, like 30, 40 years. I know editors, I know publishers, I know publicists, blah, blah, blah. So what I have noticed, and only in Australia, it could be different in the US, that not a lot of editors become authors, right? Not a lot of literary agents become authors. There's one or two I know, but not a lot. So mm -hmm. do you know why I think that is? Is because they see the challenges of writing. An editor sees the challenges. A literary agent sees the challenges of writing. They see how hard it is, one, to actually, you know, even write the book, two, to get it out there, and three, to get people interested. I mean, there's so much to it, as you know. So nice. I would have thought that working for as an agent would actually quell your desire to write. Well, listeners can't see, but I was nodding my head vigorously as, as you were saying all of that because I completely agree. And, and it's funny, um, I endorse your point because I was working in the film and television industry specifically. Uh. So right. I was working as a manager for f mainly film at that point. Uh, now, right. you know, TV is the more robust yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of avenue. But it, but when I was doing it, it was it was more film than TV. So I knew how the sausage was made, so to speak, when it came mm. to film. And there was no way that I was going to sit down and write a screenplay. I, I had designs of writing a screenplay before I became a manager. And that's sort of how I fell into that career, which was a, a lovely career. But it just it, it had an end point for me when I didn't feel creatively fulfilled anymore. And it was only by turning to books, which were my original love as they are for so many people, but it was only by turning to books, which was outside of what I was doing in a representational capacity uh, that I was able to engage creatively. Mm. So you're absolutely right. I, if I had tried to do the thing that I had been doing as a manager, it would have been difficult. That had, People have done it and, and I applaud them for doing it, but I, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So for me, it was going back almost to my original love and, and the thing that I had only ever engaged in as a reader and as a person, but not as a career. And so I'll go back before that, but but I just want to make a comment about you wanting to write a screenplay and you've written fiction instead. I haven't read many screenplays, but when I do, I can't work out what's happening because there are so few words. And maybe <laughs> it's because I'm used to reading fiction. I, mm. I really find it amazing. Like it's like a miracle how you get from a screenplay to an actual story on TV or in film. And how many words is a screenplay usually? It's about a tenth of the size of a fiction book. Would you I say? suppose it is. I mean, though, well, usually people, the rule of thumb is one page per minute. So right. if you're writing, say, a 60-minute uh, uh, TV right. script, it would be 60 pages or 120 pages for a feature film. That's approximately two hours. But right. I don't know how many pages given the font which is always courier 12 point font it's very specific i'm actually not sure i know for for regular prose you have approximately 300 pages uh, 300 words per page my guess is it's significantly less 
in a right. screenplay. But yeah, screenplays are just totally different. It's a different beast because it's yes. not a finished product. It, you're writing something that then has to be produced and that so many other people have to collaborate on to actually bring to life. And there's great beauty in that also. My my husband actually is a, he writes for TV and I get very jealous of him because he collaborates so much. He collaborates with producers and other television writers and he's constantly talking to people or in rooms with people all day, whereas I'm sitting alone in front of my laptop. But then he is jealous of me <laughs> for, yeah, yeah, for yeah. that exact reason, because he's sick of having to collaborate. So, yeah. you know, it's uh, the, a balance is, is probably best, but um uh, it's uh yeah it's just a very different form of writing just a totally and different did you think genre. that that's what you wanted to write like at what point did you decide you wanted to write a book rather than writing screenplays um I did originally think that I wanted to be a screenwriter and that's why I sort of came out to Los Angeles as so many people do the dream factory that's that swallows you up and yeah. spits you back out and uh, but no it, it actually was a great experience what happened is that I so I was a manager and I, my first client wrote a screenplay on spec that he sent to me, and it was called Hannah. And this is a movie that actually got made. Joe Wright directed it. Saoirse Ronan is the star. Oh, she right. she plays sort of like a uh, almost like tween, a twelve year twelve year old or somewhere in there um, assassin. It's a yep. fantastic movie. And when the movie came out and the credits rolled, and I was sitting in the theater. And I said, wow, that was about the best and as an experience can get for a manager. I realized that it wasn't enough and that I didn't feel like I had enough of a connection to the finished product as a manager of the screenplay that got turned into the movie years later and that I couldn't do this for 30 to 40 years, that I wouldn't I wouldn't feel fulfilled. So that was the point at which I said, mm, OK, well, maybe I, I need to figure this out. And then it took years. I mean, it took years to write my first book and um, figure out what I wanted to say and and who I wanted to be and all that stuff. Okay. So I want to go back to where you grew up and your education and how you got to where you are. Where did you grow so up? So I grew up in the suburbs of New York. In, in the States, we, we call it the tri-state area. It's New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. It's sort of like a suburban hub of okay. the city. And I grew up very much in that area, in the suburbs, in the burbs, not in the city. And I went to my undergrad at Stanford in, in Northern California, which was great. I went at a very specific time, which was when the dot-com bubble was uh, first happening, which is dating me, but I graduated in 2001. So that was wow. a very exciting time to be there. But if you were someone who basically just wanted to read Jane Eyre and talk about you know, Jane Eyre and the Brontes and other Victorian literature. It wasn't exactly a perfect fit, but I had a great time there. But I graduated not really knowing what I wanted to do. So oh, like many people- that's what I was going to ask. Like, did you yeah. have, at the time, did you think that maybe you wanted to be a writer of sorts? No. No. And I, and I've always said that if I ever, <laughs> if I ever got out onto the other side of having anyone such as you ever be interested enough in me to ask that I would be 100% honest about this, because I feel like so few people ever answer this way. Mm. I, I always felt as a struggling would be writer, 99.9999% of people when they're asked, well, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? They say from when I was four or from mm. when I was eight years old. And I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. That was not the case for me. I never wanted to be a writer. I was always a very passionate reader. 
mm-hmm. um, of any almost any genre, especially mysteries and Victorian literature. But um, I never wanted to be a writer, and that continued on until that moment when Hannah, when when the credits were rolling for Hannah, and I even then I wasn't thinking, oh, I got to write that novel that I've been passionate about. More, I was just thinking, I need to do something that's going to uh, fulfill me creatively. So I need to figure that out, and that happened when I was about thirty. So it wasn't until I was about 30 that I knew that I wanted to, um, that I started the process of becoming a writer. Mm. So you went to Harvard Law School. Were you thinking you're going to be a lawyer? Is that how, is that why you were there? No, I was more (laughs) thinking, yeah, I was more thinking, but much to my, my parents' chagrin, I was more thinking that I didn't know what I wanted to do and I wasn't really ready to be out in the world. The The fuller and real answer also is that I uh, did not come out as being gay until I was about 25 years old. I, oh, wow. I was just a late bloomer um, in that way. And I think it's it set me back a couple of years, not in a bad way, but just yeah. in that I needed a bit more schooling, a bit more time in the collegiate bubble. So it's almost as if I extended my university time that way. And I had the privilege to be able to do that. Many people would not have been able to do that. And I, and I was able to do that with my parents' help. So I, I'm very appreciative of that. And some of my very best friends I actually made in law school. It was almost as if those were my formative years, mm-hmm. because I think of the personal growth that I had to do there. So this is all, this is all very, a story of a late bloomer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, li- I'm liking it. Do you know, um, yeah. and I've only thought about this now, there are a lot of people that, are, a lot of authors that I speak to that studied law, you know, and some even practiced for some years and then came to yeah. writing. But I don't meet any other linear occupations. Well, not often where doctors, for instance, have come to writing. I don't mm-hmm. get the same kind of amount of that. I think law would be the most popular from law to writing. I think that's true. I think that I think there's a personality type that goes into law that can can sort of go into the writing bucket. There are a lot of people that go to law school that, you know, definitely would not become writers, but I think there is a type that does. And yeah. also I say this all the time, law school made me such a better writer. I mean, law school is a lot about writing, actually. It's not necessarily creative writing, but it is how to write efficiently, how to write persuasively. I mean, those are all skills that I draw on in my novel writing, 100%. And and you're just constantly writing in law school. At least I was in my law school. So it was, I didn't, I, you know, I'm, I'm retired. Uh, I'm a retired lawyer in the state of New York and I I never really practiced a day. I, I passed the bar and then got sworn in and immediately retired. But I actually do use uh, a lot of what I learned in law school. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
Does it give you comfort? Like let's say, you know, your novel came out and it bombed. Would that be something you would draw on or you just? Oh, yes. No. Yes. Yes. I mean, it has given me comfort for many years now to think that I could draw on it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an absolutely. Okay, so what came first, the writing or the podcast, the writing of the novel? The, the well, the podcast came before the Busy Buddy. So I published one novel before the before the podcast, which is called The Decent Proposal. Um, right. And it was it it was published by HarperCollins in the U.S. I'm not sure if or how it came out in the Australia. To be perfectly honest with right. you, but it's not a mystery. Um, it's a suspense novel. It's it's sort of adult contemporary. Has a love story in it, but also some suspense. But I I would never call it a mystery. It certainly was not marketed as a mystery. And that did okay. And then I had the very cliched issue of the sophomore novel where I was, you know, banging my head against a wall, a laptop, whatever, and and not really uh, coming up with something that was working for me. And this went on for quite a while, actually. Mm -hmm. And it was during that time that I started the podcast with Catherine, with my friend. And a couple of years into the podcast, it still took me years to have this epiphany, I realized if I'm not sick of talking about and reading Agatha Christie for literally hours per week, I mean, I was devoting hours upon hours a week to this, especially in the beginning. It's very hard to launch a podcast, as I'm sure, as you know, Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of it's a it's a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. And you got to really love what you're talking about, or else you're just going to give up on it very quickly. And I realized, why am I not writing a mystery? This is absurd that I'm not writing mystery. And once I I realized that it's not like it was easy, it's never easy, at least for me, writing is never easy. I'm not going to pretend that it was, it was effortless, but it 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 clicked. It clicked and I, re- I was like, oh, this is what I should be writing. And the busy body is the result of that. Okay. So then another part of me says that you've got all this knowledge around writing and Agatha Christie and master writer, master storyteller, and now you're going to have a go. Does that make you feel, well, did it make you feel like, you know, can I do it? <laughs> <laughs> I I think I revere Agatha Christie so much as a writer, as a genius. Yeah. And I mean, it's something that I, I I say as much as possible because there's still so many people who do not give Agatha Christie her due, who are like, yeah, but you don't really think she's a good writer, do you? And I'm like, no, I, I think she's one of the best writers ever. I think that's mm-hmm. why she has sold over 2 billion books. And I think she was a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, I hold her in such high esteem that it's it's not even close. I I can never come up to her, nor nor am I even trying. I'm trying to do my own thing, but also very much drawing on some of the the tropes and the tricks that mm. I analyzed and you know delighted in uh, in the course of the podcast. So it is in, in homage to Christie, but uh, I'm not even going to pretend that I'm writing something as effortlessly enjoyable and brilliant as the bulk of her output was. And not to mention the fact that she wrote as much as she did too. I mean, that's the other thing she wrote brilliantly, but she also wrote a lot. And um, I'm, I'm just the more, the more writing that I do. And in particular, the more mystery writing um, since this is actually, this is, as you mentioned, the first in a series, the more I am in awe of her actually, and realize how, how difficult it was what she actually did year in year out for over half a century. 
Okay, because I've never interviewed Ag- Agatha Christie, she hasn't been on this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> tell me, because I speak to a lot of people where I read a book and the sentence, you know, I'm in love with the sentence or I'm in love with the paragraph and I often think, oh, gosh, and that just came out of the author's mouth just like that because it reads so, you know, beautifully and I'm not looking at mm-hmm. the technique or the craft. Was she that kind of writer? You know, was she rewriting sentences, paragraphs? Do you know that? Do you, or was she somebody that just sat down, wrote, and then moved on to the next one? She at the at the height of her powers, she wrote incredibly quickly. Right. She was very, very efficient. I mean, she she wrote so much. It's actually very difficult. We obviously know when her books were published, and they tended to be published once a year. Although in yeah, the wow. 30s and 40s, it was more like yeah. twice a year. There was a, well, there was one year where I think it was three in a year. Wow! But she was writing so quickly that she actually just had a queue of novels waiting to be wow. published. So it is it's tricky knowing exactly how quickly she wrote and how she wrote too, because she did not like to talk about it very much. You know, she was born in 1890. So she was born in Victorian times. She grew up in Edwardian times. So she had that sort of Edwardian reticence, especially as a woman, uh, where she did not want to toot her own horn. So she barely ever talked about her craft and almost acted as though it ha- it just happened, mm. which is nonsense. Um, uh, of course it didn't. Um, even in her autobiography, I mean, she wrote an, uh, bio- an autobiography that's over 500 pages long, and she barely talks about her writing, her writing process in it. Wow. She talks a whole lot about her childhood, and, you know, it's a great book, but it's um, it's frustrating in that regard. So we don't know a whole lot or at least we don't know as much as I wish we did about how she wrote. But we do know that she, I mean, she she certainly did revise. She interestingly changed the way that she wrote initially as she got older because she started using a dictaphone more. So she started actually um, speaking into a dictaphone, which some people believe made some of her later novels wordier than her earlier ones. But even with those novels, she would go back and, and you know, they would be transcribed and she would revise them. I think that the finished product, especially in the best Agatha Christie's, is effortless. And the thing that she does better than almost anyone in any genre is to create a readable, propulsive story. Mm -hmm. And that is just such a quality that's easily dismissed because I think you read it and you say, oh, it goes down so easy. This is so easy. So it can't be good because it's not complicated. And it's like, well, no, it's it's good and it's brilliant because it's easy. And I mean, T.S. Eliot talked about the joy of reading an Agatha Christie in the bath. I mean, th- these are these are books that are meant to be enjoyed, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that they're not good or interesting or complex or masterful. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah no, it no, just no, it frustrates that. me that people misapprehend that to this day. <laughs> to this day. Yeah. There is, well, I mean, you probably know this, there's this snobbery about, you know, what's commercial fiction, what's literary fiction. Yes. But anyway, that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> I just want to ask one more question about Agatha and then I want to get to the busybody. Did she have the same editor? Do you know? Did she work with the same publishers? Did Oh yeah, she she well she worked with she had one publisher for her first five novels and then she actually jumped to Collins. So she was with William Collins, Billy. <laughs> Billy mm. Collins was her editor. She had the same agent once she made that jump as well. So basically for her entire career, she was with the same publisher age and agent and also the same US publisher as well. So it was yeah. what eventually became HarperCollins and and Dodd Mead in, in the US. And yes, I mean there was great consistency there. 
which is not something that is all that common nowadays. Mm. I mean, the idea of a writer sticking with the same publisher from, uh, I believe, 1926 until 1976. I mean, that is when the last of her novels, very, very rare. And her letters are very entertaining. I mean, she was not shy about uh, telling her opinion about covers and and just the you know there are so many little in ins and outs of the pub of the publishing process when you're okay. getting into the nitty-gritty and um tell me about yeah. your process to getting the busybody published firstly did you you know how did you approach the writing process were you you know a nine to fiver were you writing linear were you how did you what is it they say you're a pantser or a forgotten what the other one was. Do you, have you heard that term? I haven't, no, but oh. I, I can tell that I want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's two. two Is it like pants or pajamas? Pants or pajamas or something no, like that? A or trousers, means, I should say. No, I think a pants means that it's um, by the seat of your pants. Like you just. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. You just, you get in there. You're not that organized. You're not that, you're not planning out. You don't have a whiteboard of where the characters are going. It's more just Got sitting it. down and writing. So which one are you? Do pants do do pants in Australia mean underpants like they do in the yes. UK or is it yes. they do okay yeah they no do. that's a con- constant source of confusion between the yes. US <laughs> yeah yeah well they also mean pants as well so we've taken oh they can on. mean pants sometimes oh okay yeah. interesting yeah interesting. yeah trousers yep <laughs> um, but what are you what's your style do you think um you know I my process for the busybody it was it was definitely more efficient so I I'll just talk about that. I had an idea of what I wanted to do, and I wrote it for me relatively quickly. My first novel, again, when I was just figuring out yeah. what I, what kind of a writer I even wanted to be, that took years. And it was like a little bit here, a little bit there, and I had a full-time job at the same time. So this, though, you know, I was doing the podcast, but by the time I was writing The Busybody, I did not have a full-time job. So I really was able to devote at least my minimum is four hours a day you know, four hours of actual writing, which often translates into taking up six to eight hours, you know, of Mm. sitting in front of your desk. Because you've got to tidy your desk twice a day. You've got to tidy your desk. You've got to check your email. You've (laughs) got to go to your favorite websites, you know. Yeah. yeah, Um, I I have two children. The the, the children are also, and and that was, The Busybody was written when my oldest uh, was quite young. So she was also taking up a lot of my time. But yeah, I would say a, a minimum of four hours a day. And generally after that, it tends to be diminishing returns. That's about as much as I can handle in a day. Mm-hmm. And do you apply word count to that or just leave it as is? I usually, I usually do. I try to, um, and it's, well, I've actually, I, I'm, I've all, I've just finished a draft of the book after the busybody because I, oh, I have wow. a second one that's yes. coming out that will be coming out in a year. And for that one, I did 500 good words a day, oh, wow. <laughs> which, yeah. which is if, if you can do 500 good words, true, you know, true words that will probably make it into uh, the real draft of the novel. That's, I think you move along at a pretty nice clip actually. Mm. So uh, five more than that though. Um, and I, and then I start doing what I call like a thousand garbage words a day. And then that's Mm. where you're just sort of, it becomes gobbledygook or you're describing things rather than actually writing. And, uh, that frustrates me because then you start living in that murkiness rather than feeling like you're writing a book. So 500, 500 words a day. Yeah. And so do you think the greatest influence for The Busybody is Agatha Christie? 
Is that how Absolutely. You see? Yeah. yeah. It's I yeah. mean it's the easy answer but and the obvious yeah. answer but it's the true answer. It's definitely Agatha Christie. I didn't though I never tr- tried to imitate her prose style. And that's also what I mean, because she had this sort of this effervescence and this this ease and lightness, uh, not in all of her books, but in her best books, at least in my opinion. And my prose style is a bit more involved. Uh, it's a bit heavier. So yes, Agatha Christie was was my biggest influence. But I think the fact that I have read as widely as I have in the mystery genre overall gave me the confidence to say, well, let me take from Agatha Christie what I think I can take, which is some of the concepts, some of the, again, the tricks or the tropes that she that she used and, and put those in my book in sort of a classic puzzle mystery sort of a way. But I'm not going to worry about or try to sound like her because, you know, look oh, at Dorothy yeah, yeah. Sayers. Dorothy yeah. Sayers is a beloved queen of crime as well. And her writing style could not be more different from Agatha Christie. So that kind of freed me. The fact that I was a fan of Christie, but also had read widely within oh. mystery. And also to, you know, to sit down and, and copy a actual writing style is kind of dead end. I mean, you know. It yeah. never works. There's a, I made reference to this on an episode recently, actually, of, of my podcast, but I, Ernest Hemingway has a great yeah. quote about that where he says, like, it's just not good. <laughs> like, you yeah. just, you sh- it's a dead end. Like you said, you just, you shouldn't do it because you're not, your writing's not going to be alive if you're mm. just trying to imitate someone else's. It's absolutely. It's do you know what else I think too? And often people say this to me because I've been in the industry so long. Oh, I've got a book that I'm writing, but I'm not going to tell anyone because they might steal the idea. And I think that, for someone to steal an idea is very, very difficult. You know, um, one time a friend of mine, she wanted me to see what she'd written and she wanted me to sign an NDA. I'm just like, what? Because what I think, and you might disagree with this, but if I said to you, can you please write a story about the dog walking in the park? And then I wrote the story and five other people wrote the story, it would be entirely different. Yeah. Not just in yeah. style, in everything, because you bring to it your experience, your knowledge, your Yeah. yeah I it's, it's funny. I've I completely agree with what you said. And I and I've actually um had to think about that a lot because in the film industry, when I was still a manager, as you can imagine, there are a lot more venues in which you have to share your ideas because you have to pitch people. You have to talk to producers about, well, here's what I would do maybe if I was going to rewrite this assignment. And it's such a symptom of a newbie writer, a newbie screenwriter. So most people go through it where they say, oh, but I, I can't say what I would do because they'll steal the idea. And it's like, they're, they won't. (laughs) And and honestly, (laughs) the, the sad, the real sad reason is because there are no new ideas like they're mm-hmm. they've been done. And when you actually sit down and write something, you're going to bring your unique personality and passion to it so that you will create something interesting, hopefully. But the idea, the core of the idea, like you said, the dog walking in the park or whatever it is, it's not new. It's no, been done no. millions of and, times at this point. And I you know? think for me, that's the beauty of fiction and why I get addicted to it. It's Yes, I do like storyline and I do like strong story, but I also like what comes with it, like what yeah. that author tells me. And that's why exactly. I love this podcast. You know, I hear so many fantastic stories. Anyway, we're out of time, Kemper. Oh, I could I talk to you. Like, I could have done this. You know, I know. We could my podcast more. episodes are like out. Sometimes they're like three, four hours long. Oh, so I'm, I'm glad that you're cutting me off because I could just stay here all night. <laughs> well, do you know, I'm going to go and find your podcast and I'm going to have a listen. Uh, the book is called The Busy Body. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.